This episode of Paper Team is brought to you by the 2017 Launchpad Feature Competition. Now in its fifth year, the Launchpad has helped 254 writers get signed, 81 projects get set up, 48 writers get stuffed, and led to four bidding wars. Paper Team listeners can save $15 off their entry by using the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout. For more information on their current competitions and exclusive partners, visit tblaunchpad.com. Welcome to Paper Team, a podcast about television writing and becoming a TV writer. I'm Alex Friedman, aka TV Calling. I'm Nick Watson on Twitter at underscore NJ Watson. And today we're going to be talking about being immigrants in the US and working in the TV industry as foreigners because uh, immigrants, we get the job done. But first, we're going to do another one of our Paper Scraps segments. This week, we're going to be chatting about the big news in Hollywood. Shonda Rhimes is moving to Netflix from ABC. Ooh. Are you sure that's not a fourth act twist? (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. Maybe we'll have another couple of twists and she'll end up at Hulu. Who knows? But no, she's definitely going to Netflix. What do you think about this, Alex? From Netflix's uh, sort of standpoint, I can definitely understand why they would want uh, Shonda Rhimes. I mean, she's massively popular and very prolific as both a producer and a writer. And let's be real, her shows are insanely addictive. We've talked about how to get away with murder probably like 50 times in our 50 plus episodes. And I'm sure actually Netflix's numbers back up the idea of this addiction. Right, because they've already had the show streaming on there from ABC. But on ABC's end, I mean, this has to be a huge loss. I mean, they literally built the entire Thursday lineup around her. What was it called again? Thank God it's Shonda or what have you. That was like the Thursday lineup. TGI something. Yeah. Yeah, with... Crazy Anatomy, How to Get Away with Murder, Scandal. Scandal. They even had prior practice at some point, and it's insane. And she's been with them 15 years. Since writing the sequel to Princess Diaries. That was really? her first that job was her for first ABC. Job? Yeah. That is <laughs> for crazy. Disney, I mean. She's still developing like a new Grey's Anatomy spinoff focusing on Seattle firefighters. So I guess it's going to be called Seattle Fire. Is that the hot <laughs> new ABC show? <laughs> Literally hot. Uh, but no, I, I agree. I think this is the biggest thing to hit the industry in a while. Everyone's talking about it. You know, Shonda is one of maybe three or four showrunners who still have this literal empire in this day and age. It's Dick Wolf, Chuck Lorre, Greg Berlanti, and Shonda Rhimes. They all have five or six shows on the air at any one time and many more in their pipeline. They are behemoths for their respective networks. So this is really going to shake things up for ABC, who, you know, I think we're really just starting to reestablish their footing again since they had their heyday back with Lost and all that kind of thing. They have put in a lot of work to build up this great, diverse, critically acclaimed comedy lineup with Blackish, Fresh Off the Boat, all that kind of stuff. And it really felt like Shonda was holding down the drama for them. Like you said, she has an entire night of programming just for her shows. Now, after this news was announced, ABC very quickly signed up Carlton Cuse to a new ABC deal across from his former deal at A&E, who apparently are kind of getting out of scripted. Yeah, I mean, Carlton Cuse has been doing a lot of scripted on a cable with Bates Motel, mm-hmm. uh, Colony, so that's an interesting call Exactly, I mean, yeah, right, he was one of the original producers of Lost, so it exactly. seems like I'm wondering if maybe they're trying to push back towards that direction again because it just feels like they've lost such a big part of their brand with Shonda. Like, are they going to kind of let CW have this diverse perspectives and shows and move away from that again and try and compete with the big event series type thing? I don't know. I mean, 15 plus years ago, NBC was the world of comedy and then ABC was more of the world of drama and soap. And now it's flipped where ABC has so many comedies that are known quantities, Mm -hmm. whereas NBC still is 
sort of searching itself in the comedy spectrum. The They're failure back. of CISA recently. Exactly. And then they still have those big dramas. Obviously, you brought up Dick Wolf. I mean, you still have this empire that's being built on NBC on the drama front that is slowly, I don't want to say crumbling, because Shonda Rhimes' shows are still successful on NBC, but it's going to disappear at some yeah, point. it certainly seems like a big hit for their female viewers. How are they going to replace the content for that demographic? Certainly not Carlton Cuse, I don't think. I don't know. I'm sure Carlton Cuse can, uh, can write strong, sassy characters. <laughs> I mean, in my mind, the, the sort of the bigger question and what immediately went to my mind when I saw the news is what kind of show is Shonda Rhimes going to write for Netflix that she just could not make at ABC? Mm. All her shows are very much framed in kind of the same mold that I don't want to say procedural kind of shows, but it's very much this formula that's repeated over 20 plus episodes and they have this insane pace. So I just don't know what kind of show is going to be on Netflix by Shonda Rhimes that you just could not see on ABC. Or is it just a question of money? Is that yeah, the- I, I mean, we have spoken at length before about how Shonda's shows are the epitome of this broadcast drama structure, perhaps to an unhealthy extent with yeah. the, that breakneck pacing and the seven acts and ad breaks. So how does a show like that even fit into a Netflix model? You know, I'm wondering if we're going to see a structural shift to something that maybe allows Shonda to slow down a little with the storytelling and plan for longer arcs, maybe have less massive turns seven times a show instead focusing on big cliffhangers between each episode to keep people binge watching on that Netflix model. Isn't that kind of opposite of her brand? I feel like most of Shonda Rhimes' shows are literally there for the soap, Mm -hmm. the action, the character dynamics that constantly change on a scene-by-scene basis. Totally. So So maybe it stays the same. I just think that that's, it's such a, something that's bred out of being on a broadcast network. So it's going to be interesting to see how it adapts to Netflix. Bread for this. <laughs> I'm sure we'll do a whole episode just on Shonda Rhimes. I feel like we've got so much Shonda Rhimes content on this podcast. I blame uh, Alex. <laughs> Let's talk immigrants. So over the years on TV Calling, I personally talked a lot about my own background as an immigrant and moving to the US. And throughout the years, I've actually gotten a lot of emails asking to either discuss on TV Calling or even with Nick on the podcast about being an immigrant and all these elements. And although we did talk a lot about moving to LA in our very first episode, I thought it'd be interesting to dig even deeper into the experiences of being an immigrant in LA, in the US, and in the TV industry. And one of the reasons why we're doing this episode is because we received an email by Elizabeth. Elizabeth says, Hi Alex, love the website. I'm currently halfway through my college degree in Trinity College in Ireland, and I know I'm going to have to move to the United States from here after graduation. I know that LA is the place to be for TV writing, but I guess I'm just curious to know if I should establish and develop my writing skills here in Ireland before I make the big move, or even if it would be advisable to live somewhere like New York before I leap to Los Angeles as I have family and friends there. I suppose my big question is, in your experience, what do you think the best course of action is for someone moving from overseas like me to do when we're first starting? out. Thanks, Elizabeth. So just to start things off, let's sort of like reset where Nick and I come from originally, like kind of like what is our setup before we move to the US? Yeah, here's the teaser of our careers. Previously on Paper <laughs> Team. <laughs> I definitely think we have some practical advice for Elizabeth, but everyone's story and journey is going to be so unique that I think it's important to just kind of clarify the specifics of where we came from and what we were doing. Uh, as we mentioned before, I'm from Australia, from Melbourne. And I was basically still studying for most of the time that I lived there. I had just finished my master's in screenwriting. I had taught at a university for a year. And I had kind of dipped my toe in the industry there and found that there really weren't that many opportunities and needed to go somewhere where I could do more with that. Moved to Canada for a year, worked on sets there, made some connections, then came down to LA. And uh, Alex, what was your situation? 
Yeah, I mean, so I'm from uh, Paris, France, not Texas, as I always say. And actually, I moved straight from France to LA directly right after college. So I studied in film school in Paris. And then after I got my green card, which we'll talk about later in this episode, I think I was 20 years old when I moved straight to LA from Paris. So I didn't really have much or any sort of professional experience in the TV department outside of internships. So that was a huge leap. And I think the, the first thing we should cover, and just to answer directly Elizabeth's question, is this idea of moving somewhere like Vancouver or New York before getting to L.A. And also, should you have things set up in L.A., like having a job ready to go as soon as you land in L.A.? And, and kind of what was our situation before we got here? Now, I will say that neither of us had jobs lined up before getting to L.A. It's actually pretty difficult to do that unless you sort of already know the person who can lead you to those interviews once you land in LA. I mean, I think you could submit resumes and documents or before moving to LA, but I would really suggest putting a physical LA address on it. If you're going to do that, maybe a friend's place or a family member living there uh, to give at least the illusion that you're already in LA. Yeah, I agree. I did actually send out my resume for about a month while I was still living in Canada when I knew I was going to be coming down and I was hoping to kind of get some interviews lined up for a little bit down the road. Uh, I did get no bites when I put my Canadian address on it. Like, why would anyone take a look at two resumes? One person's living two blocks away and one person's living in Canada and take a risk on that. So once I started using the address of the place that I just put down my rent deposit on in LA, I was getting more responses. And I got an email about an interview as I was stepping on the plane in Vancouver to come down to America. And it was actually to assist the X-Men director, Brian Singer, which was pretty cool for me at the time. I'm like, wow, maybe I actually have a shot. I mean, one of the reasons why you want to put that address is because interviews and job offers go by so quickly. Like people interview one day and they'll be hired the next day, like yeah. literally the next day. So I think it's incumbent upon you to really be in LA or really know that if you're trying to get a job once you land in LA, then at least you know, make the first move to be aware of where you'll be staying or other elements of your living situation in LA before you even get there. And in terms of visas, as we'll discuss in more depth later, sometimes you do need to come here on a tourist visa and then get a job and then get the job visa so you can work that job. So it, it is this, this, this Sisyphean process. And in terms of living in LA, I mean, my first six months in LA were really rough. But in my mind, that was kind of compounded by the fact that I was moving to another continent without really knowing a single person there. I sort of landed in LA without any contacts. And the only contacts I made initially were either through online meetup groups or people I chatted with through Twitter and my website. And was this the first time you were living out of home as well? Like you hadn't been living by yourself in Paris. You'd just been straight from your parents' place to LA knowing no one, <laughs> trying to make a break in the industry. Like that's intense. Exactly. Yeah. It was really my first living situation alone. That wow. was quite the... <laughs> well, I mean, I was kind of lucky that I had made a few connections from already working in the industry up in Vancouver because so many producers and production companies and, and talent and whatever are going back and forth between LA and Vancouver all the time. It's easy to make those connections up there. I mean, I say lucky, but it was kind of the whole reason I moved to Vancouver in the first place. I chose to move to a city that I was already familiar with. I had friends there from when I'd studied there at UBC on exchange. So I knew I would have an easier transition and more of a safety net. I could be close to the U.S., and the film industry and start forging those connections to make that leap easier without having to take that full headlong plunge and just hope for the best. In LA, I didn't want to end up homeless on the street and not know anyone. <laughs> so, you know, 
it worked for me. My first friend in LA was an assistant to a big film producer who was producing the film that I was a director's assistant on up in Vancouver. So she came over to help this producer out on set for the last couple of weeks of the shoot. We became friends. And when I ended up moving to LA, she helped me out so much when I was first down there in terms of meeting people, building my network, finding opportunities, and even just people I'd been emailing with in my job. I said, hey, I'm moving to LA. Do you want to grab drinks? And everyone was really friendly and helpful. And ironically, you're now homeless. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it all worked out so well until we know I'm, I'm okay. But yeah, I mean, wherever you are, especially if you're already in the US, you can start building those connections to people in LA. And maybe it's just about building some online presence and reaching out to aspiring writers or joining online groups like the LA TV Writers Group or Screenwriting. Mm, I've actually had a number of Australians reach out to me over Twitter or email or Facebook or whatever and say, hey, I'm thinking about moving to the US or I'm going to be stopping by for a couple of weeks. Do you want to get coffee? I'd love to ask you about how you got established here. And I always, I'm like, yeah, sure, let's do it. So it helps. Well, it's funny because you never say yes to my coffee uh, asks, <laughs> Nick. As I mentioned in the very first Paper Team episode, I mean, in my mind, the focus, if you're not already in LA, is about building worthwhile relationships in the city, either before you move here or once you do. I mean, it's hard to really gauge whether or not moving somewhere like New York would be beneficial to you, more beneficial to you compared to moving directly to LA. Since you're already sort of moving cities and countries, you might as well jump in the big pond. But I know that I'm someone who kind of like embraces those big changes and did not mind uprooting myself to work here. I think it's important to understand too the difference between what kind of work is available in those cities. So New York is a lot more like late night shows and theater. If you're interested in working in the theater world and Broadway, absolutely move to New York. But if you want to get in like TV sitcoms or something, LA is going to be a much better bet. You don't want to waste all that money and time setting yourself up in New York. It's very expensive to live there. And then, you know, just try and transition to LA. I think you may as well just make the jump at that stage. But if you say want to be working on sets as you want to be an AD or something, absolutely go to Vancouver and get a bunch of experience there. There's so many productions that you could work for a couple of years and really establish yourself then move down to LA and take bigger, better jobs. So it depends on what you're looking for out of this. If you want to be a writer, I will say that LA is the place to be. Especially when you're talking about production, even in the US, there are elements like Atlanta, New Mexico, those locations are definitely sort of like hopping right now because yeah. of the, the tax cuts and all these elements. So if you want to get set experience, then there are other avenues than LA. But as you brought up, Nick, I mean, if you want to write, there's only one place. We don't want to rehash everything we said in the first two episodes of our show on the subject, or, you know, moving to LA, meeting people, but we will link those down to the show notes. So you can check those out if you want more details about that. <laughs> So let's talk about now once you've made the leap and the decision to come here, how was it getting settled in? What kind of difficulties are you likely to run into? Any frequently asked questions, cultural differences, all that kind of stuff. Tell us a little bit about your experience when you were really setting yourself up in LA. As immigrants moving to a foreign land. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, my first six months as a foreigner in the US were, were kind of hell. I mean, I did not have a car which I'll talk about a little bit later. But first, let me sort of speak to my living situation. So the first place I stayed in LA was a hotel in Koreatown with my dad. Koreatown, in case you don't know, is an area of LA where there's very little sort of like Anglophone businesses around. So it's very different from the rest of LA. But the workers in the Koreatown hotel ended up going on a strike because of wage issues the same way we landed. Oh, wow. And then shortly after, the hotel closed down. So I guess that they didn't resolve the issues. <laughs> anyway, so I landed in LA without really a lead in terms of housing. And I knew that I kind of had to find a place to live 
essentially within a week or two of being in the hotel. Fortunately, I was able to find this furnished studio sublet through Craigslist. And it was kind of this perfect spot on Fountain in Fairfax. And then I get to the place. And it's one of the dirtiest apartments I've ever been in. The tenant had never cleaned the place as far as I could tell. Then I realize the place that is supposed to be furnished is actually not furnished. I mean, what they actually meant by furnished was a bed frame, a mattress, a pillow, and that's it. No sheets, no towels, no plates, no utensils, no microwave, no pans, no tables, no anything, not even a shower curtain. Wow. So within 48 hours, I literally had to go to a Bed Bath & Beyond on the other side of town at the Beverly Connection shopping mall and basically buy a bunch of stuff that I kind of immediately needed to live in my apartment. Now, keep in mind, at that point, as I said, I, I did not have a car, so I kind of had to take the bus to and back from Bed Bath & Beyond to my place. And at Bed Bath & Beyond, they kind of give you these like super deep plastic bags. So I kind of looked like a homeless person dragging all my crap to my place uh, halfway across town. But anyway, cut to a month later into me living in this barely furnished place. Turns out that the place that was never cleaned by the tenant before I got there was actually infested by clothing moss. So I had half of my wardrobe utterly destroyed by insects within two months of me landing in L.A., so that's a, a pretty good start to LA. No, <laughs> no, no, I'm kidding. Pretty positive. Uh, yeah, no, similarly, I had a little bit of a nightmare experience in my first two or three months in LA. Those, it is hard to kind of settle in and get everything right, right off the bat when you don't know anything about the place. So I rented a room off of an Australian expat through this Australians in LA Facebook group, which I do actually recommend looking at. You know, there's a Brits in LA group. There's probably some for, for Irish people to, you know, whatever you want. And, you know, he was cool, this landlord, and understood my situation in terms of not having a credit score or a bank account or a US credit card because he had done the same thing. So when I first arrived, I just was wiring him money to an Australian bank account. Now, this room in the apartment had some problems. It was right off of Hollywood Boulevard in La Brea, so it's not the cleanest or nicest area of town. It's super touristy. There's no parking, way overpriced. I think my room was actually a converted like loft. It wasn't meant to be a room, and they just put up some walls, <laughs> and there was no ventilation. So, you know, it's tricky when you're looking at like, pictures of a place before you move somewhere, and you have to like lock it in so you know you have somewhere to live. Like I recommend if you can, try to actually physically walk through places. Get a short-term Airbnb, get a hotel, whatever you have to do, so you can physically see what it's like. Yeah, I mean, Always uh, step foot in that place. I mean, I wasn't able to, and look what I got. <laughs> yeah, same with me. So, you know, I thought it would be central and cool to live in Hollywood, but I didn't necessarily recommend it. So anyway, once I started living there, it was the- Hey, Nick. <laughs> Sorry, Alex. Uh, it was the roommates that made it hell. There was this young German couple, and the woman legitimately had so something like OCD because she would scream at people if something was dirty or messy around the house. And it's got so bad that she insisted that all the men in the house would pee while sitting down in case it splashed anywhere. And I soon discovered that she would listen at the bathroom door to make sure you were sitting down while peeing. <laughs> like, this is insanity. Literal, like, someone is wrong and in their head. And insanity. Yeah, exactly. So I confronted her about that being, like, way too far and insane, and so she got aggressive, and her boyfriend threatened me, and I was moving out of there immediately. So the next place I moved, I'm still at now, out in Burbank. I've been there for almost two years. I'm loving it. There's free, lots of parking. It's quiet. There's lots of greenery and parks. I can't recommend it the valley enough, although it does get a little bit hotter than the rest of LA. So just be careful about that first place you move. It's usually not going to be the best experience, but don't lock yourself into 12 months of someplace you've never been, all that kind of stuff. Just exactly. Be wary. I mean, six months after that sublet, I actually landed the apartment 
we're recording this very podcast in and where I've been living in for basically six years. And it is in Hollywood, Nick. So uh, it's a little further back. Thoughts. I mean, it's, it's not too far. Yeah, exactly. You will pretty soon figure out what you like in LA and make an effort when you get here to go around and see all the different areas of town and see what you like and what you're attracted to and understand how you get around to those different places. All right, now let's talk about sort of the cultural differences and really being an immigrant, landing in the U.S., trying to make those connections and sort of breaking into TV as well as just living in the U.S. Yeah, so it's funny because I didn't think I was going to have any real culture shock being from an English-speaking country. You know, there's really, you wouldn't think there's that many differences between Australia and the U.S., but the longer you spend here, the more you realize that there are little things that you don't account for, you don't think about. Anything from like general manners like it's so weird to me here everyone calls people sir and ma'am and whatever that feels so strange and what do they call people in uh in australia like what's up bro yeah, just like mate buddy mate. like you know stuff like, you know, even canada is a little more like chill than here i don't know it's strange so even yeah with things like word choice and lexicon i'm often saying something in a sentence and people are like what and i'm like oh, oh you don't say that here or you don't have that here it's like little things that you don't realize <laughs> it's like speaking another language even though you know it's very privileged to me to be like oh my god this is so difficult when i i still know english but you know but it could be anything from some kind of like brand of like cereal to like a tv show that americans have loved as children or cultural touchstones and we just never had it in australia or, you know, just a literal word for something. Learning how to spell things in an Americanized way is strange. And I, I feel like I switch back and forth when I try to spell with this, like, to my Australian friends when I'm typing things. How do you spell color, Nick? Well, now I spell it C-O-L-O-R. <laughs> but I, I'm always, like, stuck, like, especially the, the mom thing. Like, if I'm talking to an Australian friend, I'll type mom, M-U-M. And then if I'm talking to an American friend, I'll type it M-O-M. So it's, it's like a weird code switching thing. And again, like accents, having to pronounce things in a more American way for them to understand you. It's kind of silly how if you say something slightly different, Americans are just like, what? I don't get it. Like, I feel like that's this entire podcast, Nick. I don't understand anything you're saying. And I you know. don't understand anything yeah, I'm that's, saying. That's the criticism um, we got is that people don't understand what we're saying. <laughs> I mean, I definitely agree that for me, at least the biggest struggle isn't just sort of like the cultural barrier, but... Also, the language barrier. Since I don't come from a, an Anglophone country, I feel like every little conversational element that feels natural to you or anyone listening to this just doesn't naturally come to me. And specifically regarding the sort of the TV industry, one of the main things we need to do to make a career is networking. You got to constantly meet new people, make new friends, new connections, etc. And the first step to achieving any of that is small talk. You know, you come up to a total stranger, what do you talk about? And Small talk, really, if you think about it, is about building that rapport. You know, it's, oh, you like X thing. I also like X thing. Let's be friends forever. And as someone coming from a very different cultural background, it's hard to make those immediate bonds. I think I said this in one of our earlier episodes, but I sort of figured out that most people here love to make small talk about three things, the state or town they're from, the mm -hmm. school they went to, and the sports team they support. Well, I'm not from Ohio. I didn't go to Northwestern and I don't really care about the Seahawks. So yeah. <laughs> not much to talk about there. But on the flip side, I mean, you could say, okay, I'm from France. That's an instant draw. Like people want to talk to you, but it's only attractive because it's exotic. As I said, really small talk is about bonding with someone, not looking at some like shiny new object. And I feel like most people, when I tell them I'm from France, originally they start talking about either their high school trips to Europe or, you know, they took French in for like one semester in college. So that's not really bond. I mean, I guess it is bonding for them, but for me, it's like, okay, cool. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely not on that same level of everyone's always like, oh my God, you went to X college, even if they didn't go to that college or some college in the same state, they're like, oh, my friend went there. And they're like, oh my God, I know that person. And it's just like, 
it is that instant connection that these people have or sports or whatever things that we don't culturally understand or have a connection to. So that's, it's a weird thing and it feels like something strange to complain about, but it, it is honestly a big issue sometimes. Especially, I mean, that's literally what this business is built on is relationships. Yeah. So if you can't make that bond initially, you don't really have a chance, I guess, to build that relationship. It's really yeah. tough. Now let's flip the script and talk about sort of like our expectations of Americans. What were you expecting Americans to be like, Nick, when you landed here? Well, there is certainly this like global perception of Americans as this classic trope of the fat, dumb, ignorant <laughs> people. No offense to the Americans here. Uh, who, but, well, no offense to Americans who are those people. Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, but no, I've kind of found that the Americans I've encountered on the West Coast, especially LA, don't really fit that trope. Maybe that trope is more of the Midwest Trump voters. I'm, I'm sure these people exist somewhere. But overall, I found Americans, particularly in LA, to be very kind and open-minded. Some of the LA stereotypes are very true. The health-conscious hipsters, you know, running to those people who do that kind of wheel and deal networking are clearly out there to use people in the industry. They're, those people exist, you know, like uh, stereotypes about agents are kind of often true. Those kind of things that you see in the movie, there really are people like that. Not all of them, but those people exist and they thrive in that environment. <laughs> I didn't really have any expectations about Americans. I personally had been in the U.S. multiple times before I moved there. And like Depeche Mode once sang, people are people. So I never thought that everyone in the U.S. could be this like large, overweight, obnoxiously loud, bumbling buffoon. But there are definitely sort of like through lines or elements that permeate people, obviously. So I feel like those through lines are mostly about personality than anything else. And having lived in New York for a bit, I can definitely sort of sense the difference between West Coast and East Coast and how they approach their daily lives. I mean, West Coast is definitely more relaxed and laid back, whereas East Coast is usually more blunt and to the point. Yeah, I agree. It's interesting for me because in Australia, we don't really have those regional differences. The people that you find in Melbourne are not that different from the people you find in Sydney. So it's, it's strange to see such a stratification of different types of people in America by state or by coast or that kind of thing. It's, it's strange to me. And even accents, like they're also different here. Now, speaking of uh, accents and perception, once you landed in the US, how did you sort of deal with this idea of like, you know, the cliche Australian dude eating steak and hopping around in a kangaroo? Oh, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I was doing that, so it's fair enough. No. <laughs> yeah, there are definitely a lot of stereotypes and expectations about you and the country you come from, whether it's Australia or France or Ireland or anywhere else. You know, I want to set the record straight that Outback Steakhouse is not Australian in any way, shape or form. I know for a fact that the founders of Outback have literally never been to Australia. It's just fried American food. It's maybe like Texan barbecue, but worse. Uh, no one in Australia knows what a Bloomin' Onion is. But now that we got that out of the way. Wait, you don't have a membership card to Outback Steakhouse? Yeah, so we it's automatically get a life membership. But. Damn it. No, there's obviously those silly questions that people will ask you about, you know, oh, do you guys have kangaroos for pets? And, oh, everything's so dangerous in your country, all that kind of thing. Like, you know, I'm sure you have the same kind of things with France about mimes and accordions and baguettes. And You're kind of the only person I know <laughs> who actually asks about any of this. So really, I put the blame on I'm, you. I'm single-handedly perpetuating the French <laughs> stereotypes. So I'm going to bring it back. But as we mentioned about the accents before, this is the one thing that happens all the time. I keep running into people who say, oh, you're Australian? Oh, I can't even hear an accent. And every time I have to do the same kind of spiel about it. Essentially, it's a combination of the fact that I've always had a fairly neutral accent. It's been borderline between Australian and, and British sounding. It's never been very good. I might, hey, going. But aside from that, I've unconsciously adapted here to be better understood. I've spent almost three years in North America now between Canada and L.A., 
I'm not trying to hide my accent or put on an American one. None of it is conscious. It just kind of happens through assimilation to some people. I know others here from Australia who still sound like the most Australian people in the world, and that never changes. But myself and some other friends are often mistaken for being American until we point out and people start listening harder and like, oh, I heard how you said something slightly different there. I I caught a snippet there. I like to call it Schrodinger's accent because all of my Australian friends and family insist that I sound American. And a lot of my American friends are like, oh, no, you sound Australian, particularly the ones that know me well. So I kind of can't win. Uh, But (laughs) apparently I can pause for American if people don't know what to look out for. Yeah, I, I definitely echo this sort of like can't even hear an accent comment that I get nine times out of 10 when I meet someone new. And I know this may actually seem hard to believe for podcast listeners, but since I've lived in France most of my life, a lot of new people I meet actually comment on my lack of an accent. And I know we've addressed the whole accent controversy multiple <laughs> times in this podcast, but it is true. A lot of new people I meet comment on my lack of an accent. And that's usually when I mention that even though I'm from Paris, my dad is actually British. And they reply, hold on, hold on, you don't have a British accent either. Well, like Nick, I have sort of like my own prepared spiel about why I talk the way I talk. And, you know, I grew up watching American shows and then I've been living in America for a while. So through osmosis, you just end up mimicking the verbiage or the tonality of speech and and other quirks of speaking American. (laughs) And I also get people commenting English like, oh, your English is so good. I mean, yes, I would hope that my English is good considering I'm trying to be a screenwriter in America. I mean, that's kind of the whole point is being able to mimic other people's speech. Right, exactly. Unlike the Luke Besson screenplay for Valerian. Good Lord. Let's never talk <laughs> about this ever again. Definitely not in this podcast. Okay. I'd say overall how we're treated as immigrants, because the fact that we're still kind of white men who probably pass for being American is not that different from anything else that you would expect. But if you're someone who's thinking about moving here from Mexico or Syria or China, or, you know, if, if you have a particular faith, like you're a Muslim or something, I, I have to imagine that it's going to be a very different experience for you, unfortunately, because there are still a lot of stereotypes and bigotry and stuff like that here. So I think that we've had a pretty easy time of it, even though we get frustrated at little things. Yeah, I mean, a lot of it is perception, right? Versus reality. And the sad fact is that perception is reality. It doesn't matter what objectively is happening. It's more about people's perception about you and how you deal with it. Mm-hmm. And that's really hard. Their own beliefs about what it is that you are that they're perceiving and all that kind of thing. So it's it's unfortunate. But we will just mention that you may have a harder time depending on where you're coming from and, and what people think about that in today's climate. <laughs> So let's talk about the day-to-day nitty-gritty of actually getting yourself set up and getting around LA and functioning as a part of the society. And we're going to cover stuff like social security numbers, uh, bank accounts, driver's license, credit ratings, etc. Let's talk about driving, Alex. So you're going to give me your social security number, Nick. <laughs> uh, no. Anyway, yeah, let's uh, start off with driving. And LA and cars have kind of like a weirdly symbiotic relationship. I mean, maybe by the 2028 Olympic Games, we'll have decent public transportation. Uh, I doubt it. I doubt it. But by and large, if you want to work in this industry, especially if you're starting out as an assistant, you need a car. Now, with that said, I know for me, the getting a car part was one of the biggest hurdles when I got here. Uh, First off, except for England, all of Europe drives on the right side of the road. So stop (laughs) making comments about the wrong side of the road. Yeah, same with Australia. Um, Get your facts straight. Now, secondly, getting a driver's license in most of Europe, and especially in France, is actually a very difficult thing to do. Now, essentially in France, you need to go through 50 to 60 hours of paid professional driving lessons before you're even allowed to take the driving test. 
and I actually literally had to take out a loan to pay for those lessons. But then when I landed in the US, obviously I did not have a car. The extra problem was that at the time I was not only under 25 years old, but also under 21 years old. So renting a car was virtually impossible. I ended up going to this really sketchy place by LAX to rent a car with an enormous penalty attached just because I was under 21. So really, these are elements that you don't really consider when you move to another country or another state or another place, but there are really strange regulations. Another thing was, this is a separate sort of like tangent, but obviously the legal alcohol consumption age in the US and in California especially is 21 years old. And when I landed, as I just said, I was under 21. So I couldn't really network. I couldn't really go to networking events because I would get bounced out of the bar because I was under 21. So it was really hard to make those connections when I was underage. Yeah, I had that problem the first time I was in LA just traveling through. I was 20 years old and you really couldn't do anything. But yeah, so in speaking of driver's licenses, I was okay for a little bit because they let you drive on a foreign license for about three to six months or something like that. And then they recommend that you get a different one. I had a Canadian driver's license. So I just feel like it was a little easier for me. Again, people were just like, oh, he's just here from Canada. Like if I got stopped, they wouldn't really look into that much. But I did eventually have to get my own US driver's license. And to do that, you needed like your passport, your visa or green card documentation. For me, I needed my like I-94 entry record to show what I entered under the country as and then proof of address from a bill. You got to bring all that stuff there. They set up an appointment, you do this written test, which I found was pretty easy. There's some unintuitive stuff in there. And then you do, for me, a very easy drive test, at least compared to what they put you through in Australia and what it sounds like in the, in France as well. Yeah. So yeah, the, the driver's license thing isn't too hard. It's just a matter of, like Alex said, being in a position where you're able to either rent a car or buy one straight up with cash or that kind of thing. So also I will note that Disneyland needs either a passport or an American ID to serve you alcohol. So be aware of that. I tried to do it with a foreign driver's license once and they would not let me. And that was from Canada. <laughs> Were you bounced out of Disneyland? <laughs> Pretty much. Yeah, it was a crazy story. <laughs> Speaking of buying things, what about credit score? Yeah, so this is something that was new to me. We don't really have that in Australia, or if we do, it's all behind the scenes. But <laughs> so credit rating is is kind of tricky, and I still don't know if I fully understand it. But basically, it's a score that any bank or store or landlord or whatever can have access to when they're deciding whether to give you a loan or a lease on a car or a line of credit for a TV or a credit card or sign a lease for an apartment. It's super, super important. But when you arrive in the US as a foreigner, you have no credit rating. And I've heard that's actually worse than having a bad credit rating because they, they can't see a history of financial responsibility or even irresponsibility. So they will not approve you for anything. Yeah, I literally could not rent an apartment that wasn't a sublet initially because of my lack of credit score. And that actually also meant that I could not really purchase a car outside of independent sellers since other ones wouldn't kind of run a credit check on you. And it really took me several years until I was able to sort of build my credit score to a decent point. And that mainly involved getting a prepaid credit card that is usually meant for student. So what that means if you don't have a credit score is that you have to pay for a lot of things with cash or debit when you first arrived. So I bought a used car with cash because I couldn't get a loan or a lease for a better one. If you want a credit card, like Alex said, you have to do this thing where you put down a collateral for a secured credit card. So let's say they hold on to $1,000 of your money for 12 months and that acts as your line of credit. Once you've proved you can pay it off regularly, they give you that money back and they extend you a line of credit, which is probably equal to whatever you put down. So now you have a credit card with a limit of $1,000. And then over time, as your credit card rating gets better, they up it to 2000 2500 whatever, you can apply for more. So it makes things really tricky when you first get here if you need to make big purchases like rent deposits on apartment, a car furnishing your apartment, all that kind of stuff. 
or if you're trying to live off of some kind of buffer before you get work. So just make sure you have plenty of access to cash or debit when you arrive because you will find it very difficult to get any kind of loan or credit card. And if you want to learn more about sort of like building the credit score, I recommend you check out our Managing Finances episode where we talked at length about the whole process. In terms of the other things you're going to need to survive here, obviously a bank account. I found they were pretty easy to open. All you need is your passport. I think I might have even been able to do mine with my Canadian driver's license. Just tell them that you just moved here and you want to set it up. They're probably going to ask you for your social security number, but I think you can open an account without one. You can just add it later. Speaking of social security numbers, you need to go to the social security office, wait in line, show them your work documentation, like visa or whatever, and your ID, like a passport, and they will issue it to you. That was pretty easy for me too. I'm not sure if they will give out one if you're on a non-work tourist visa. I doubt it. I think it is tied up with your ability to work. Do you know anything about that, Alex? I don't. I got my own social security number because by definition, I was a legal resident. So that was much easier to get. But in terms of like the bank account, I mean, I feel like every bank is desperate to bill you. So yeah. they'll they'll be open to uh, opening bank accounts exactly. left and right. But for your social security number, that's essentially what the government uses to kind of keep track of you and their system and account for stuff like your your taxes and how much money you're earning from different jobs. It's just this kind of reference number for them to use and for you to identify yourself in different ways. So it is important and you're probably going to need it for a lot of things, particularly things like getting a loan or getting a job, all that kind of thing. It's important to have. So moving on to staying in America, working here, uh, we're going to cover stuff about visas, citizenship, and what it's like kind of working in this country as a foreigner. The first thing I did want to talk about was this idea of internships. And this was actually a big issue for me as an immigrant who did not go to college in the U.S. Chances are that if you're new in this industry, you will have to take some kind of internship before you're able to become an assistant somewhere. Now, here's the problem. Most internships are unpaid. But since unpaid internships are basically legal, most companies circumvent the problem by paying you using college credit. And as it turns out, you can't really get an internship that pays you college credit if you don't go to college. So here's what I had to do to score an internship. I went to the local community college, LACC, and enrolled in the school and into a special elective class just to be able to apply for internships. In other words, I had to pay for the ability to intern. That's how effed up the whole system is in the US. And I would say as well that unless you do have a green card, you probably can't even do that if you're here on a work visa because a study visa is a separate thing. If you want to study, you need specific approval from the government. So again, it's, it's a huge barrier to getting that kind of work and getting a foot in the door. And speaking of visas, we got this email from Patrick and Patrick says, Hi, Alex. I subscribed to TV Calling because my dream is to be a TV comedy writer in Hollywood, and I stumbled across your very useful fellowship top six and spec test articles. I think my biggest problem is I'm not a U.S. citizen. I live in Australia. I'm wondering if the show would bother with the work visa no matter how good I got. I'd love to hear your advice on this. Thanks, Patrick. Conveniently, I'm also from Australia Ooh. and have the same dreams. So I think I can talk at length about this and hopefully I don't bore everyone else who's not an Australian by talking about these very specific things because all of these Australian visas, well, at least two of them are specific to Australia. We have a, a trade deal with the US that allows us to get special treatment, which is nice. Wow. The Australian visas I'm going to tell you about as to how to get over here are called the J1, the E3, and the O1, which is the O1 is available to everyone. But the first two are Australia specific or the J1 I think is available to some other countries like Singapore and stuff as well. E3 is just Australians as far as I'm aware. 
So the J-1 is essentially a 12-month working holiday visa. Uh, you can apply for it within 12 months of having graduated at university course, whether that's a bachelor's, a master's, etc. You can only get this visa once. It is not renewable. It's super easy. I highly recommend it. If you've just gotten out of university, it's absolutely the best move to get your foot in the door over here because it's very flexible. It'll allow you to work any job you want. You need to like technically get signed off for approval by this like sponsor organization. It takes about two hours. Like it's, it's super easy. So it's also not too expensive as far as visa go. The, the biggest price is the fact that they make you buy insurance through it as well because they need to make sure you're insured over here. So I think it cost me somewhere between $1,500 to $2,000 all up, but it was absolutely worth it. And you can apply for it yourself without a lawyer. There's a lot of organizations that will help you through it. So that's the best step, best first step to get into the country. Try that and then see how you go from there. From there, you want to transition onto what's called an E3 visa to stay around for longer. Now, this is a job-specific visa which means it's tied to whatever job you're applying for or got approval for. And it's for technically professionals with a degree in that field. It lasts for two years and you can continue to renew it indefinitely. There may be an age cap past 31 or something, I can't remember. Essentially, though, the restriction is that it needs to be a long-term, more or less desk job in the industry. You can't do short-term production stuff. So I was able to work on a number of TV shows for a couple of months on and off on the J1, but as an E3, you need a job that is going to be ongoing for that entire duration or the potential to do that. You can't take two months of work on an E3, apply for another E3 and get another two months of work. It's just going to be too difficult to do and people won't approve it. They're also very, very cheap. It costs about $250, $300 to get these visas. You can apply for it yourself. You really don't need a lawyer and you can keep getting them as long as you want, like I said. So I highly recommend those. The only issue is you do need to prove that whatever job you're doing is professional enough that you require a degree to work it. So anything that's super basic entry level, you're going to have a slightly harder time proving that this visa should apply for it. But there are always, I, I'm going to be careful about what I say, but it's probably easier than you think to get an E3 visa for whatever job you're working. Just look into the details of it and, and what kind of title you need to have to qualify for it. Now, the next visa, which is probably the most important one if you want to be a writer, is called the O-1. It's also called the artist visa. This one lasts for three years, and it's for what they call aliens of extraordinary ability. I always laugh every time I say that. Are you, uh, are you an alien, Nick? I, I guess so. I guess I'm third rock from the sun. So if you can prove that you are, and this is part of the process, you have to prove you're at the top of your game in the field and you would be a valuable contribution to the U.S. The restrictions are actually a little easier than that for the entertainment industry. If you're applying under something like fine arts, science, sports, you do literally need like a Nobel Prize or a gold medal. It's kind of crazy, those restrictions. But for the entertainment industry, given it's so subjective, it's a little bit easier. For this one, you do need to hire a lawyer. You cannot apply for it yourself. You need them to petition it. And also they know the whole process of figuring out how you meet the requirements. It's usually something like six to 10 letters of recommendation um. from people working in the industry, whether that's Australia or the US. You need like a three-year plan with offers of interest or of work for job offers and things like that. That can be one ongoing job at a company, or it could be a schedule of different appointments. And also you need to find press on yourself. So interviews, newspaper articles, all that kind of thing. You need to give a list of your credits, any awards you've won, all that kind of thing. It's pretty extensive. It takes a long time to assemble all of this, a couple of months to get it all together properly. But it is probably the best thing that you can have besides a green card. Despite it being very expensive and time-consuming, honestly, by the end of it, you pay about six dollars to $7,000 US for in application fees for expediting it, which you do need to do. Otherwise, they can sit on it for years and all your lawyer fees. So, But it's basically the only way that Australians like us without a green card can come over here and work as TV writers. There are a number of Australian TV writers working right now in rooms who are on O-1 visas who don't have a green card. So... If you can get that yourself before you're even offered a job, you can work. There are also some situations in which 
you somehow finagle your way into being offered a job on a TV writing show, the network can sponsor you for this and get it for you if they love you enough. And it does has happened before. Is it easier to get it renewed? It is much easier than the first time you apply. I think it still costs around the same amount. So it's going to be tricky to keep keeping it up. Ideally, you're going to try and transition to a green card, which we'll discuss in a second in terms of winning the lottery or whatever. But you can continue to renew it. And I think that if you get it the first time, you're probably going to get it the second and third time because you're only going to have more experience and more credits to share for it. What was uh, sort of your experience with all these visas, Nick? Did you just collect them all like Pokemons? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, it is. Yeah, I have been on each of those three different visas in my time here in the US. I've only been in LA for two years and I've transitioned across all of them. So it's very expensive and time consuming. But like I said, I started on a J1 and I had no issues. I was free to work on anything. I worked on different TV shows. I started my job at this production management company on it. Now, if you plan to transition to an E3, I recommend doing it while you still have a few months left on your J1. Otherwise, you could have to wait up to a month or more to be able to start working on your E3. So you want it to overlap. That's the ideal situation. And also, you have to kind of leave the country for a couple of days to go get that visa now because they won't let you do it at a consulate in the US. You either have to go to Vancouver or to Mexico. You can fly back to Australia. I've heard of people doing it in the Caribbean, you know, anywhere that is not the US. You need to leave the country, get your visa stamped, come back in. So as I said before, the E3 is great if you're only working one long-term job, but it does not allow you to work as a writer. I learned that the hard way when I had offers for writing work and couldn't take them until I got approved for my O1. Like I said, the O1 is the best of both worlds. If you apply as a writer or producer, you can typically work for somewhere like a production company or a studio in more of a traditional desk job in development or production, maybe even a writer's assistant, and have still have the freedom to take the writing work when it comes up, whether that's freelance or full-time. So that's the goal you want to get towards. The O1 is the best thing behind a green card. Or our citizenship, yeah. Now, speaking of green cards, I'll talk a little bit about my own sort of green card getting process because, well, that's how I've been able to work here in the first place. And I actually won the diversity lottery a few years ago. Now, first off, the initial application to enter the lottery is free. All you really need is to have a high school level degree or a similar work experience. But the main thing to really remember before you apply to the green card lottery is that some countries are actually blacklisted. It's called the diversity lottery for a reason. And one of those countries is actually England. And in fact, this blacklisting is not based on your current citizenship. It is based on where you were born. So my dad is British, but I was born in Paris. So that personally did not affect me. Yeah, just to explain, the reason it's called the diversity visa is because these are countries whose members or citizens are underrepresented within the U.S. So, you know, they're trying to get different people in from all over the world, but not countries they already have too many people from, like England or maybe China or different places like that. Given the lengthy process to get approved, the lottery system is for getting a green card two years down the line. As I said, the first step is submitting your lottery entry form on their official website. And I actually sent mine on October 2nd, 2008 for the 2010 DV lottery. So I got in the US around 2010 and I applied initially in 2008. So it was quite a long wait overall. But I personally did not get a lawyer or anyone at that point because it is a very straightforward process and entry form. I mean, the rules are really laid clear on the website, at least for me. Now, about 15 million people across the world apply in the lottery, and the first step kind of whittles down to 100,000 people. Uh, that's essentially the lottery selection process that people talk about. And 100,000 people around the world will receive 
uh, months later, that second letter that's going to tell them to fill a bunch of forms for the U.S. Department of State, which I'll mention in a little bit. But the way the lottery selection process itself works is based on region or more specifically continents. Within each continent, the number of winners in each country will depend on the prior year's results. So, for example, if Germany had a lot of winners one year, then the next year they may not have as many. Yeah, so taking a look at some of the statistics for the DV lottery back in 2015, Australia had about 20,000 people apply for it that year, and of those 20,000, about 1,800 were selected. France, on the other hand, had 55,000 people apply, and only 816 were selected. So you guys were uh, disproportionately <laughs> represented there. And then somewhere like Fiji had 10,000 people apply, and they had, again, around 800 people selected. So yeah, I'm sure if you look back at past results, it'd be kind of like flipped around. But as I said, so 100,000 people initially get selected out of millions to receive that letter, but that is 100,000 people for 50,000 green cards. So from that point on, it's kind of a first come, first serve selection process. Even if, if you get chosen, you don't necessarily get the green card. You're not guaranteed, process. exactly. So like that's really where the meat of the process starts. If you respond in time with your forms, then you move on to the real work. And that is when you'll need to go to the embassy and present your case as to why you deserve to be the sole survivor. Um, why you deserve to get a green card. The main thing there is that you're basically providing them with every single document about you, you know, bank records, employment history, housing history, diplomas, websites, credits, literally everything about you as a real human being and a real hero. This also includes your medical history because before even getting to the embassy, you, you, you need to go through an approved doctor's exam that includes x-ray and kind of everything in between. And here's the best part. None of it is covered by your medical insurance. It's all out of pocket. So from that point on, I mean, you've really been selected. So now they're looking for reasons to disqualify you from getting the green card. And it really can be for any reason. Uh, this is also the most costly part of the process because we're talking thousands of dollars. And that's not even including any fees you may want to pay for a lawyer or other people to look at your application documents. Actually, personally, didn't have a lawyer. I just did the forms myself. It took a long time, but I mean, I think it was worth it in the end. Long story short, after the whole extensive interview process, you give them your actual passport. And if you're approved, you'll receive it with a temporary visa attached to that passport. Then you need to step foot in the US within a certain period of time to kind of like activate uh, that visa uh, so you can receive the actual physical green card. And then after that, you'll have a few months to move across the world and settle in the US for your residency. Is there like a literal card that is green in color or is that just a reward? The, there is a literal card that is the size of a credit card, but it's not really green. I mean, there's greenish elements to it, but it's okay. not like all green. It's more of a metaphorical green. Like exactly. You got the green light to live here. <laughs> yeah. Now I've been putting in the lottery for the last two or three years. No luck yet. I know plenty of people who have one. You know, like we said, the chances are slim, but not impossible. It actually costs nothing to just to apply for the lottery. So it's worthwhile doing it every year. If you think there's even a slight chance you might want to go. I think it's only a $330 fee to start applying. But then, like Alex said, there's all these extra costs involved once you get into the process. Yeah, I mean, the fees that you mentioned are really just for the interview process, not really the whole administrative fee to approve it. Exactly. It's a different thing. So what about getting your citizenship? You recently became a citizen. So what's the difference between having a green card and a citizenship? And why would someone want to do that? That's sort of like an entirely different process. I don't want to spend like another hour just to talk about getting the citizenship. But essentially, personally, I became a citizen for a couple of reasons. So first, I am a strong believer in civic duty and civic responsibility, which means I really care about my right to vote. And as we all remember, last year was an important election and I wanted to participate in it. So that's one of the reasons why I became a citizen. Should have um, tried harder, Alex. 
I should have double voted. Now, the other reason is more practical. As a green card resident, obviously, I'm already paying taxes, but I also had to register with the military when I landed here. So in other words, even though at the time I wasn't an American citizen, I could theoretically have been called to arms for the U.S., even though, again, I wasn't a citizen. Wow. So it was also a huge issue when it came to sort of filing administrative claims like unemployment even though I'm paying taxes and I'm a legal resident. So really on many levels, I was already kind of held to the same responsibilities as a fully fledged citizen without being able to vote, even in local elections, which I personally think is ridiculous. And just to clarify for people, you do already need to be a permanent resident to get a citizenship. It's not a separate process. It's not like you can get a green card or a citizenship. You need to get your green card, then become a citizen. Correct. And the minimum is at least five years of residency before you even think of applying for a citizenship. To kind of finish things off, let's talk a little bit about that feeling of representing your home country in the U.S. and in the TV industry. U.S. Wait, no, wrong country. F-R-A-N-C. <laughs> that rolls off the tongue. <laughs> There's definitely kind of like a decent French expat community in L.A. However, over the years, I haven't really felt that community really being part of the entertainment industry as much as the city itself. I sort of occasionally go to local events hosted by the French embassy. I was recently invited to the premiere of Luc Besson's Valerian, which wasn't good. And I thought we weren't going to talk about it. Damn it, Nick. (laughs) You tricked me. But other than that, I mean, the events pertaining to TV of the entertainment industry are kind of few and far between. There recently was an event hosted in the Rasgale Foundation Library about French and American co-productions that was also hosted by the embassy. And there's usually an annual festival called Director Series promoting French TV and French production to the American market. But the reality is that I left France initially specifically because there wasn't really a TV running industry there in the first place. And it's only been since I've left, kind of ironically, that the industry has slowly started to develop. One of France's biggest film schools started a TV running program a couple of years ago. And obviously some French TV shows are getting exported here, like Le Revenant and all these different French TV shows. Now, still, the opportunities just aren't there yet. Maybe in like a decade, the TV industry will have sprouted enough that it would make sense for me to go back to France. But as of now, I just don't feel comfortable. Yeah, as for me, I I agree. There's a strong contingent of Australians in the entertainment industry. Maybe because some of those agreements and visas and stuff are a little easier, we have our own mixers, our Facebook group boards, etc. And we do try to support each other because we know how hard it is to get here and to stay here. You know, hopefully when I'm older and I'm more successful, I'd kind of like to, I like this idea of starting a scholarship or an internship program to bring young Australian writers over to intern maybe on shows I'm working on or be my assistant or something and give them that experience and foot in the door because I know how valuable that would have been for me. There are a couple of programs like that, very few in Australia right now that are sponsored by the government to go over and literally just they cover your basic expenses to intern for a random entertainment company or whatever. There's maybe like two of those a year and it's incredibly competitive. There are a couple of other programs now they've started up. There's this one called Scripted Inc., which I mentioned before that Shane Brennan, the showrunner of NCIS LA, started up to try and give more opportunities to Australian writers and everything. But again, like Alex says, it is just a much smaller, more insular industry over there. And it hasn't reached that point yet where I would be happy going back and trying to get my start there. And I know a number of people who have been very successful in the Australian industry and they still come over here and are on the ground floor again. So I really think that it's, it's much more valuable spending the time here. I'm open to the idea of working with Australia and Australian productions in the future, maybe as a co-production in kids animation, because we do actually have a lot of that over there. But I can't see myself choosing to go back and try and make a career there right now. 
so there, there's enough Australian stuff going on here in LA that you do kind of can feel a sense of connection. There's this like Australians in film, they have screenings, all that kind of thing. But again, LA is still the place to be. Any resources for our uh, aspiring immigrants? Well, I'll definitely recommend this forum called Immigration Portal Forum. And that's really where I headed back during my lottery process a few years ago. It was a really helpful place to sort of ask questions and get answers and feedback and also follow other people in the same boat as you are, metaphorically, in terms of, oh, these are all the people applying for the same lottery and did they already get a letter? Did they already get their appointment at the embassy? So it's a really useful kind of community specifically dealing with immigration issues for the US. I think I mentioned that Facebook group earlier, Australians in LA and Brits in LA and all that kind of thing. There's probably a group specific to you if you look out there and a lot of those questions will have been covered or mentioned in that group before. You can use the search function or ask your own questions. A lot of people who are helpful and supportive will will kind of guide you through that process too. Even just like some silly questions like, where can I get Tim Tams? And it's like, well, you can buy them at Walmart, you know, things like that. And on that Tim Tam note. Yes, on that Tim Tam note. Thanks everyone for taking the time to listen. You can get all the show notes for this episode at paperteam.co slash 56. And in a few weeks, you can get the transcript for this episode at paperteam.co slash 56 transcript. If you want to leave us some reviews, that would be awesome. We always love reading those, and it will help our show find new listeners. As always, thanks again to our sponsor, the Tracking Board's 2017 Launchpad Feature Competition. Paper Team listeners can use the code PAPERTEAM, all caps, all one word, at the checkout to save $15 off their entry. You can learn more about all the Launchpad's current competitions and exclusive partners by visiting tblaunchpad.com. And I'm on Twitter at TV Calling. I'm at underscore NJ Watson. If you have any thoughts, feedback, opinions about your visa uh, document, definitely don't send us your visa. Yeah, we documents. are not lawyers. You can send anything you want in terms of screenwriting related questions at ask at paperteam.co. Yeah. And next week, we're going to be taking the week off, I guess, for Labor Day. But what are we doing after that? The week after that, we're going to be talking to our friend Becca Burgess, who works in TV casting. And we'll talk about that whole process of getting actors in your TV shows. And that will be on Monday, September 11th. So we'll see you then. See you then.